0: Hello and welcome to our new podcast recording. Today, we talk about EU trends in 2021. This podcast is the second part of a two-part podcast series on the topic of EU trends in 2021. And it is based on our publication, which is also called EU trends in 2021 that you can find on our AIS website. That paper explores the key developments in 2021 regarding the regional stability in Europe, the political integration of the European Union, as well as its recovery, security and defense and space policy. And I'm very happy to have three distinguished authors of that paper with me today. My name is Michael Sinkanel. I am the deputy director of the AIS the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. And with me today are Sophia Satanakis, our senior research fellow, Christoph Schwarz, an AIS research fellow, and Katrin Süß, a project and event manager at the AIS. Thank you all for being here with me today. Hello, Michael. Nice to have you. Hi, be here. Michael. Hello. Thank everyone. you for having us. It's great to have you as you can probably hear we are recording the session again from our homes, since we are still at uh, home office mode at the AIs. We will start today's uh, podcast recording with Katrin, who is going to focus on her part of our paper on EU trends in 2021. Katrin, you have focused on the historic recovery plan by the European Union. Can you probably start by telling us about the recovery plan and how it is set up?
1: Yes, of course. Um, So first, I'll have to tell you a bit more about the facts, how it came to the adoption of this recovery plan. So due to COVID-19 and its negative effects on the economy, the International Monetary Fund predicts an increase in the accumulated worldwide loss of $11 trillion relative to pre-COVID-19 estimates for 2020. And it projects up to 28, uh, yeah, $28 trillion loss increase by the end of 2025. So that's actually a substantial amount. And the European Central Bank estimates for the euro area alone a 7.3% loss. Due to these developments, the EU adopted the largest financial stimulus packages, package in the EU history, which accounts for 1.8 trillion euros and consists of two main stimulus packages the multi-annual financial framework and the next generation EU fund. While the MFF, the multi-financial framework, aims to finance the recovery and reconstruction of the EU economy in the long run, the next generation EU is a temporary instrument, which means that it seeks to boost the economy ad hoc. The first fundings of those stimulus packages will already be made available to the member states by next summer. So that's basically how it came to the fund and also what it is in short words.
0: Perfect, thank you for this very precise explanation of the recovery plan. And uh, I must say, this is really a very substantial sum I would be interested, what makes this plan, aside from the entire uh, money that is being spent and planned here for the European recovery, what makes this plan so
1: exceptional? Um, Well, there are actually several aspects why it's so exceptional. Firstly, it's the largest financial package ever funded through EU budget. Moreover, as my colleague Livia in the last episode already said, um, it is tied to the compliance with the EU rule of law standards, which also never has been there before. Um, However, there are far more exceptional features to this plan. For example, it is also tied to environmental and digitalization goals. So the disbursement of the funds is tied to environmental and digitalization policies of the EU member states. This means that the EU does not only seek a quick recovery, but it aims to make it a greener and more digitalized transition. This especially becomes apparent by the fact that more than 50 percent of the package is dedicated to support modernization efforts such as research and innovation through the Horizon Europe project or a fair and digital transition through the Just Transition Fund. Moreover, 30% of EU funds are devoted to climate change. This is by far the highest share ever dedicated by the EU to mitigating climate change and this aims to actually reach the use new climate targets which are the reduction of co2 emissions by 55% by the year 2030 and climate neutrality by the year 2050 yeah so <laughs> this transition is planned to be financed by the private sector through the emission of new bond standards and also through taxation. In addition to to this crucial role of climate policies in the new recovery plan, the commission also established the recovery and resilience facility. This facility makes large scale financial support available in form of loans and, and grants to Member States in order to support their reforms and investments in the social. In the social aspects of the recovery and also to aim. To enhance the um, resilience of the recovery and of the Member States. So yeah, this is summed up the exceptional features of the plan.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. These features that you have just pointed out to make the recovery more digital, more green, and certainly also more fair in a social way, sound like a very ambitious plan. I would be interested now, how can member states exactly obtain the funding And uh, where do you see potential problems that could arise in the future?
1: Okay, first, um, the governments of the member states can obtain the funding by submitting very detailed recovery plans by the end of April. And those plans have to be very well elaborated, but they also have to comply with the Requirements of climate policy, digitalization, and modernization. While most of member states actually have already submitted their proposals, some governments have yet to hand theirs in, such as Austria, for example. Among the first who have applied for the funding were France, Germany, Spain, and Portugal. However, the The reimbursement of the fund highly depends on the specifics of the national plans. For example, if the plans do not comply with the climate policy of the EU, or if they do not have enough green investment integrated in their plan, this would mean that those Member states could not obtain the funding which is reserved for the greener transition, which is almost 30% of the whole package. So it would be a substantial loss if this is not included enough. Moreover, a late or not detailed enough submission may pose entry restrictions for the governments. Also, although a substantial amount of money is made available for the member states, it will highly depend on the national priorities and influence of various lobbies in the countries itself, if and how effective the funding will prove. For example, since small and media enterprises are particularly affected by the crisis, advocates in the EU as well as national governments to spend the money effectively, meaning to prioritize small and media enterprises instead of big organizations, and to provide direct fast and simple access to the funding. So what I think is or may pose a big problem or a potential problem connected to the funding is that it will depend a lot on the individual member states' priorities and decisions this year, whether the funds will flow to the right places and allow the EU economy to complete effectively in the post-COVID-19 world economy.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much for this very detailed elaboration of the European Recovery Plan and the initiatives that the European Union is going to undertake to mitigate the financial impact of the COVID-19 crisis. Let's now move to our next speaker, uh, Sofia Satanakis. Sophia, you are an expert when it comes to secured and defense policy, when it comes to the operations and missions of the European Union. You have Extensively published on these topics before. And your part in this EU focus on the uh, European Union's trends in 2021 has also touched upon exactly that topic, the security and defense. And my first question would be what main trends do you see for 2021? What lies in store for the European Union in 2021 when it comes to? security and
2: defense. Well, thank you, Michael. First of all, let me uh, just say that it's very exciting for me to not be moderating one of our podcasts uh, and to be interviewed instead. So uh, it's very nice to be here today. Now let's get down to business. The European Union, as we all know, has been marked by a decade now of consecutive crises, and it will most certainly continue to face a complex and occasionally also unpredictable security environment. Just to give you a few examples, we have to deal with a more assertive Russia, a more assertive Turkey, strengthen China, hybrid threats, terrorist threats, and so on and so forth. It's a very long list. But events like, for example, the military conflict in Libya, which is causing France and Italy to at least geopolitically drift apart or the resurgence of the frozen conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh a couple of months ago, events like that highlighted the limits of the EU's common foreign and security policy once again. So we still have a very long way to go here. Additionally, we have the COVID-19 crisis and the Brexit negotiations, which demanded the full attention of decision makers on the EU level, but also on the member states level respectively. And so the result was that the existing lines of conflict were further exacerbated. Another thing that will uh, remain a central issue in the coming months or years is the debate between France and Germany regarding uh, the famous concept of strategic autonomy of the European Union. Uh, And it will remain central because it reflects diverging positions on the EU's geostrategic orientation and it contributes to further polarization within the Union. It's important to keep in mind that Berlin and Paris have very different viewpoints as to how the credibility of the European security and defense policy could be or should be enhanced. So a weakened Franco-German axis in that regard would slow down or even hamper the development of the common security and defense policy of the EU. Put very simply, and I will end here, um, given the turbulences of the past years, and the various strategic challenges still ahead of us, the European Union will have to adapt to the new global political reality as fast as possible and as good as possible and continue focusing on deepening European defense integration and cooperation because the alternative, uh, there is no alternative actually to this. Otherwise, um, we might not be um, effectively able to counter the threat of becoming geopolitically irrelevant in the near future.
0: I definitely agree and I thank you very much, Sophia, for this very precise uh, outline of the main challenges of European security and defense. You have mentioned already before the COVID-19 crisis. I would be interested in how do you think the COVID crisis has impacted the European security defense or how is it going to impact also the further developments in European security defense policy in the upcoming month?
2: Well, the coronavirus is here to stay, as we found out the hard way by now. Uh, And it will surely continue to preoccupy the European Union. And it could prove detrimental to our security and defense in many ways, strategically, politically, economically. Worst case scenario, it could lead in the long run to a profound loss of European solidarity and trust, which would then result in a growing fragmentation within the institutions, and of course, among the member states. So what started out as, if I may say so, just a health crisis, is now expected to lead to an unprecedented financial crisis as well, and renewed cuts in the member states' defense spending. So we'll have a repetition of what we already had uh, during 2008, the financial crisis back then, and experts fear that things might even be worse than they were back then. Um, And just a brief reminder, it was uh, devastating. It was really bad for European armed forces back then. So we cannot afford a repetition of what happened there, let alone something worse. So all of this has the potential to bring the 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 dynamic development, I would say, of the CSDP over the last three to four years to a standstill. And this, of course, would make Europe much more vulnerable because we cannot afford stepping back and being lazy in security and defense, especially nowadays. Uh, And of course, first cutbacks in the European Defense Fund, uh, in the European Peace Facility, and even in the space sector, they are already a reality. But I don't want to be too pessimistic here. So I'm going to end on a more positive note, uh, because we have positive developments as well. Uh, For example, during the German EU presidency at the end of last year, we reached an agreement which finally allows third countries to participate in PESCO projects, of course, provided that they fulfill certain political and legal preconditions. But this is actually a very, very good development. Uh, And this way, we can no longer rule out the participation of the United Kingdom, which may have left the Union, but we still want to keep it as closely integrated uh, also into our security architecture as possible.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much, Sophia. Uh, My last question would be regarding the EU and US relationship when it comes to security and defense. Historically speaking, the relationship, the transatlantic relationship was always a very important point also to safeguard the European uh, security. So what do you think with Joe Biden now as the new US president? How can we expect the developments in this transatlantic relationship, are they going back to normal or do we see a continuation of the Trump uh, relationship and the the Trump area also in the transatlantic relations?
2: I would like to start by saying this, uh, no matter who's president of the United States, Uh, NATO will remain the main framework for European security, at least in the foreseeable future. Um, So it's, of course, a positive thing that it's Joe Biden now and not Donald Trump. But anyhow, NATO is still of the highest importance for the European Union. And although now uh, with the United Kingdom having left the Union, 80 percent of NATO defense spending will be covered by non-EU countries, which is actually a huge amount. And therefore, we can expect that Joe Biden, much like Donald Trump, will continue to put pressure on his European partners to contribute more to the alliance. Uh, Of course, in a more diplomatic way, we are assuming and hoping, than Donald Trump did. Uh, But that's nothing new anyway. It was Donald Trump. It was Barack Obama. It will be Joe Biden. Um, This burden-sharing debate within the alliance is basically as old as the alliance itself. Uh, at the same time, Joe Biden will try to restore European trust in the United States and the transatlantic relationship, but whether he will succeed to 100% or whether things will go back to the way they were before Donald Trump, that remains to be seen. Although my personal opinion is that this will not be the case, at least not completely, because we cannot undo uh, the four years of Donald Trump as president and a certain amount of reluctance uh and the change of attitude towards the United States will remain. Um, Let me end with this. Um, I would say that this increasingly interconnected transatlantic security environment is a given, it's a fact, it's undeniable. But nevertheless, the European Union will, in parallel to closely cooperating with NATO, also continue to pursue a deepening of its European defense integration and will strive to achieve at least some form of strategic autonomy, mostly through the permanent structured cooperation and the European Defense Fund.
0: Wonderful, thank you very much, Sofia. Despite these challenging times ahead, uh, I believe that you have not only painted a gloomy picture, but also an optimistic one when it comes to the future of European security and defense. Um, our last speaker for today, my colleague Christoph Schwarz. Christoph, you have been previously researching on space-related issues, um, especially with regards to security and defense. You have also been featured at our very first AIS podcast and have you have published also on, on that topic of space and space development. And my, my question would be, How do you see the trend of space policy in the most recent years? How has it changed? How has it grown? And uh, what would be your main takeaways, how this development has shaped also uh, the global political landscape?
3: Uh, Hello, Michael, uh, and hello, audience. It's great to be here today. Um, On your question, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, On a global level, we've been witnessing a trend in recent years that space is uh, significantly growing in importance, Um, be this from a commercial, a civil or a military perspective, uh, or even in pop culture. Um, If you look on uh, different streaming websites, you can see shows about space uh, popping up everywhere at the moment. Um, And this trend was largely facilitated by the emergence of new technologies and ways of manufacturing that um, increasingly allow the private sector to become a real driver of growth uh, in the space sector. So while in the 20th century, it was um, basically uh, state-driven only or uh, where the state um, was the main shaper of uh, activities in space, this has changed sort of um, by um, yeah the private sector stepping in. Uh, companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, or Virgin Galactic uh, are really redefining space as an area where commercial applications are uh, a dominant factor. I mean, this is not to say that uh, they have replaced um, nation states as, as the main actors in space. Um, nowadays, it's more of a corporation. Uh, Of course, um, also areas like uh, space exploration or an increasing focus on space from a security and defense perspective have massively regained momentum um, through this whole development. And uh, considering some of the potentially disruptive technologies that are uh, currently in the pipeline, like artificial intelligence or quantum-based communication or also enhanced robotics, um, they will most certainly only inha- intensify this trend in the in the coming years, yeah.
0: That sounds indeed very interesting and I believe that there are a lot of challenges ahead when it comes to the technological advancements and also space-related policy issues. How has this trend developed in Europe in the most recent years and where do you see that uh, the trend is Uh, heading towards in the years and in the months to come?
3: Europe has, um, in the last decades already, been uh, a traditional, let's say, space power with the European Space Agency and its member states, um, having really achieved um, astonishing things. But in recent years, what kind of changed or what can be considered a significant development is that the EU has really established itself as a driver for space affairs in Europe. Um, as I said, this already started some years ago, but um, this really intensified with the creation of the Director General for Defense Industry in Space, which is headed by Thierry Breton. And um, so there have been really a lot of initiatives in, in, in recent months and years that, that really bring uh, European space um, policy forward. And uh, one of the driving factors behind this development has been the realization that uh, space is a vital element of the EU strategic autonomy, um, so that Europe is able to provide for itself space-based services and not rely on other actors such as the United States uh, or others. And um, this is really represented by the two current EU flagship programs, which is Galileo, um, a global navigation satellite system. So it's kind of a pendant to the us gps or the russian glonas and the other one being copernicus which is an uh, earth observation program um, so they've greatly contributed to uh, autonomous eu uh, capabilities in space and they're yeah, very important for a lot of different uh, areas
0: thank you so much christoph you have just mentioned the improvement of the european strategic autonomy also through the space sector can you probably give us a couple of examples of initiatives that are planned in this regard for the years to come
3: Um, yeah yeah um, of course um, to to sort of continue in this trajectory the european commission has launched a a year-long feasibility study um, for 2021 on a new eu flagship program Um, It it was at the end of last year and the beginning of this year when Thierry Breton announced it at the European Space Conference. Um, It will be a new satellite constellation for a connectivity system, um, which will for once um, provide uh, secure communication um, for European actors, uh, civil actors, but potentially also military actors. It will provide connectivity um, support, for example, 5G um, and applications like the Internet of Things, and uh, it will build upon the already existing golf set program of the EU. Um, so uh, this this uh, potential program, which is, like I said, currently uh, in a feasibility study, um, could really uh, help the EU remaining a competitive and above all, autonomous actor in the digital age, um, because it will, it will stimulate demand for the European space and, industry um, and really allow Europe to uh, go into a lot of areas, uh, a lot of the digital applications that uh, is needed, so to say, in order to uh, be competitive economically, but also in security terms in the future. Um, Another area that I think is uh, noteworthy, uh, it is also something that was um, announced by Thierry Breton at the European Space Conference, is uh, concerning Europe's unhindered access to space. Um, In in the last year's access to space in Europe was um, strongly, I would say, defined by dependencies on other countries like the US or Russia uh, in order to get European um, astronauts or uh, assets into space. So uh, Thierry Breton has uh, declared in his welcome address at the space conference that the commission would initiate the European launcher Alliance to establish a common roadmap for the next generation of launchers and technologies um, relevant to ensure Europe's autonomous access to space. And especially in the light of really rapidly um, uh, progressing, uh, launcher technology, as we currently see in the United States with SpaceX, where, um, they're using for the first time reusable rockets, um, which greatly decreases the costs for, uh, going into space. Um, so if you, if you compare, um, SpaceX today to the space shuttle of NASA, to, uh, the costs of going in space, into space, uh, can be reduced or could be reduced by a factor of 20 by SpaceX as compared to the space shuttle. So this is really a remarkable development where Europe really has to pursue a more uh, aggressive and offensive strategy in this area in the future, in order to not be again reliant on other actors for a financially viable access to space.
0: Thank you so much, Christoph, for these very important and relevant insights my last question would be regarding the european union agency for the space program eu spa um, can you just quickly give us a glimpse into that agency and how it is being used and set up
3: yeah of course um so in the in the past it was the so called European GNSS agency, GSA, located in Prague, um, which was responsible for Galileo, basically. And this year, 2021, we'll see the establishment of the European Union Agency for the Space Program, or EU SPA, um, replacing this agency. Um, and what this will change effectively is that, besides Galileo, this new agency will also manage Copernicus, um, the GovSet program, and the EU Space Situational Awareness, um, which monitors uh, objects in space and space weather. So uh, this will really help um, improve getting every, uh, all the EU space activities under one roof for better coordination um, between those different programs. Uh, and basically streamline EU space policy in a a much better way. And also the um, personnel of this agency will increase from 100 to 700 people. Uh, So this will be um, quite a big and positive change uh, for EU or European space affairs in general. So if if we look ahead at the year in European uh, space policy and activities, I think there really appears to be a, a newfound dynamic uh, in the sector, which has already been there for the past few years, but um, seems to continue or even speed up uh, as we go into this year. Um, and I think there's really a potential for considerable progress. Um, as I already said before, this is to large degree owed to the EU having established itself as a driver for space affairs. And yeah, I think we can all be excited of what's uh, still to come in the coming years.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Christoph. I think this was a very important and relevant outline of the most important developments in this uh, up and coming and very exciting new field that is certainly of uh, strategic relevance also for the European Union. I would like to thank uh, the three speakers of this podcast today, Katrin Suess, Sofia Maria Satanakis and Christoph Schwarz. Thank you very much all of you for your inputs. Yeah,
3: thank you, Michael.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks, Michael. It was really great talking to you.
0: Thank you, guys. And I'm very much looking forward to our next podcast recording, which will again feature Sofia Maria Satanakis and Katrin uh, who will present their paper on the shifting uh, focus of Turkey's foreign policy. So stay tuned for this new episode Of our AIS podcast, which will be airing soon. Stay safe and healthy, and thank you very much for listening.